folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And I started my show 10 years ago, and um, I didn't realize it at the time, but the reality is that it's culminated in uh, rhythm. And uh, in many ways, rhythm is love, rhythm is language. And it's an opportunity, and it, it was an opportunity at one time to, in fact, be um, a language amongst cats who were being um, looted from their from the motherland, uh, coming over to uh, the islands and diaspora uh, to be able to communicate in code uh, in order to for salvation and sort of keep their uh, ethnic heritage uh, intact and. Uh, Obviously, once it got to the states, um, you know, the, the slave, uh, the tactics of the slave owners in the states were much harsher. And you had pl places like Congo Square where they allowed the slaves to get stuff out of their system maybe once a week for a couple hours. And they'd fire off a cannon signifying that it was time for the slaves to uh, go back to their plantation. And um, suffice it to say, rhythm has always been highly mistrusted within Western society and very misunderstood. I think they would just prefer to have, uh, you know, uh, European harmony, uh, European harmonies and classicalized music uh, and keep the rhythm at bay, pacify audiences, and most importantly, conform. Uh, that's not to say that there's not value in classical music. There is, but rhythm lets the body dance. Rhythm opens the heart for authentic love. And most importantly, expanded consciousness and I get a chance today to speak to a professor and a cat who has dedicated his life to the origins and the lineage of the drum and the rhythms behind it Philip Royster welcome to the Jake Feinberg show uh, it's good to be with you Jake and and with your audience it's an honor man you know I I, I, I wanted to start off by playing we have a game on this program called name that voice I don't expect you to know who this is but take a listen to the content Come back and talk about it. Yeah, I mean it's and it's a malign neglect um, because there's certain it's a way to be racist by exempt, simply exempting some things, not admitting to certain things. That's also can be a very that's racial. Right. That's right. Act, and that and that's what's been happening, and that's where the covert behavior comes in you know it's not going to be let's get across and put on a white sheet and burn this mother to the to the to the and, and hang him from a tree and then cut him down and cut off his penis no they cut off your penis in a thousand different ways uh they, they can burn you up in a thousand different ways so we do have some issues that need to be addressed and the reality is that i'm coming to the conclusion and I think I'm hoping that most of us will that we have a human base here, and I mean it, does, it transcends the color. We've got some people here on planet Earth who want to be human beings, right. who really like the idea of what humanity can do for each other, and are doing it. And I've been blessed. That's one thing that traveling has done for me, and it continues to do that. It allows me to meet angels. It allows me to meet people who give a damn and care and really have feeling and passion and love. And I'm experiencing that in my life. And they all they come in all shades and sizes and sexual orientations. And I don't care what you are particular, what box you check. All I ask is that you be human and we can get along. 
There's only one race here, and it's a human race. And unfortunately, we do have some people who are so insecure and so messed up that they would like to control and dominate. And consequently, they're messing up things for everybody. Philip Royster, uh, you want to take a guess at who that is? Not really. <laughs> who is it? That, that was uh, an interview I did back in 2016 with uh, Abiodun Olewole from The Last Poets. I know you know that group. Um, Absolutely. Right. So, you know, I mean, he we, we were talking about the drum and the rhythms of the drum, and then he went into this, you know, what I thought was a beautiful piece of uh, poetry about one human race. And I just, from a sociological perspective and a not even an academic perspective, but from a street scholar perspective, I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, if you agree with that sentiment that he was talking about. Well, yeah, there's no question. He was speaking gospel, as we say, um, gospel truth. Uh, there is only one human race. Um, but the problem is that race is a, a social construct. It's a term all races that we have identified so far are really socially constructed, not biologically. Absolutely. And so once people agree on this social idea, then they begin to behave towards each other and towards themselves in relationship to that idea. So even though we all are all human beings, okay, biologically, socially, we've been differentiated and we live in very different, different societies based upon how we self-identify and how others identify with us. So on the one hand, we have to recognize that race actually does exist because we treat each other that way, all right? Even though there's biologically all human beings are 99.4% or something like that, uh, all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, but what he what he really means is he's really attacking racism and he's attacking into stratified societies like ours based on race. And that's the right thing to do. Okay, but we don't want to deny that people have racialized experiences. Okay, for instance, I'm a black man and I live in a world that's been determined because I was born into a I was born on 4742 Langley in Chicago. Okay, and I come from a culture that was at that time segregated, okay, and um, very, very socially and culturally determined. There were many, many things that were very, very positive about it and constructive. There were some things that were negative about it, okay? And my, my life is not the same as the life of somebody, say, who was born in uh, the North Shore of, of um Chicago, mm-hmm. okay, in a suburb like Evanston. So we've got these dual things that we've got to do. We've got to recognize that all human beings belong to humanity on the one hand, but we've also got to recognize that there are different cultural and socially determined experiences. It's a beautiful explanation. I'm curious as to what you think. I've been spending a lot of time on my show Mm-hmm. talking about this and i just wanted you to do you i i this is my opinion and you can riff on it any way you want uh is sure. is the word racism the right word because we all are one human race to me cultural bias i mean no baby is born to hate so you're born into a, a, a community 
that distribute that has cultural bias and you're you learn derogatory names and you learn to discriminate because that's what everybody around you is doing but it, it you know to me it stems back to uh you know the when di- diaspora when the when the the plantation owners basically uh looked at uh people with black skin and uh they said well you know if you had white skin you would be christian so therefore you're subhuman so it, it seems to me almost like it was a religious a religious kind of thing again i'm just a 43 year old radio host but is racism in your mind a constructive term or is it something more along the lines of cultural bias or just discrimination well all of these terms have different dimensions okay and we invent languages to describe reality okay (laughs) Um, and you know that's just part of what it means to be human and so there are some people who will use the term instead of racism they'll use racialism okay Mm. so people argue over language all right and they all we're always inventing new language like we invent new music that's just the way the world exists Languages like the earth beneath our feet is always changing. Okay, so I don't get particularly upset. I just want to know when a person uses a term, what are, what's your definition of it? Okay, you know one of the most slippery terms in the world is love. Okay, very simple four-letter word, but every human being's got a different interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I don't generally argue with people who want to use who call something love that I don't call love. I just ask them. What are you referring to when you use the word love? You know, for me, love is awareness. But for many other people, love is say something else. So uh, that's the way I handle that. I don't have a problem with people who use the term race uh, or racism. You know, it, it's, it happens to refer to uh, the ideology and the societal structure that was based upon a people, Northern European primarily Anglo-Saxon in our country at this time, um, who believed that they were superior to other people and who organized their lives on that basis and organized the lives of other people that they could control, okay? And that includes a very sophisticated, complex ideology, okay? A A system of ideas that's full of thousands and thousands of concepts and judgments, okay? Uh, but also creating an everyday life, okay, a concrete life based upon that ideology, okay? So we need something to identify the fact that Thomas Jefferson believed that Anglo-Saxons were superior to all other groups of people in the world, including a lot of other people who today are considered white, okay, Mm. but who at his time were not considered because white was an invention that developed, you know, uh, here in the new world. So, um, no, I, I, I don't get into uh, arguments with people about whether they want to use race or racism or cultural uh, distinctions or whatever. I just ask each person who, who's talking to me, if I'm not sure what you're talking about, I'll ask you, well, what do you mean? Give me an example of that, okay? Mm. Because it's much more important to arrive to a truth together than to argue over language. Because if you want to argue over language, you can do that for days. Uh, no, I mean, there's just, yeah, I, I, you're right. It's, uh, it's a term 
that was brought about by a social system that was or that was created. You're right. I mean, uh, it just there's a lot of people that have been brainwashed in a lot of ways, and I just I'm always looking for ways to. Um, I don't necessarily need to engage them directly, but I try to bring out of my guests things like I'm going to read you this quote from Bill Summers, sure, uh, the the great percussionist. He said. Um, I was just listening to your interview of him, as a matter of fact. On YouTube or the radio one? I was listening to the one on uh, on uh, the iPod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm going to send you – I got a great one, another great one for you that's on video. But let me read this to you. Okay. He said, uh, he said we need to get rid of the word Santeria. If you're dealing with Puerto Rico or Cuba or Venezuela, places like Mexico, like Veracruz, where did this word Santeria come from? It's not African. The word Santo means saint. Santa is feminine for saint. It's Spanish. It's Latin-based. It has nothing to do with African stuff. The Lukumi people were brought to Cuba as a result of warfare in Africa. Warring tribes and ethnic groups sought the spoils of war and wound up with prisoners who they sold into slavery. The Lukumi people came to Havana. Uh, I, I apologize if I pronounced some of this stuff. Oriente, Santiago de Cuba. And they were dispersed mm-hmm. across the island, and they were from different ethnic groups. Well, there were enough Lukumi, there were enough Arara, there were enough of the Karabali, enough of the Congo people for them to unite and keep their traditions together. Some of these traditions mm-hmm. spilled over into each other's. They, as black people, had to bring those things together into one nation. It happens to happen a, a lot with the Lukumi because they embraced the Congo traditions and the Palomayombe and the Abuka. Abuqua from the Karabali. They brought all these traditions mm-hmm. together. Uh, as whites came in, uh, there were some who feared it, and they said, this is the evil, this is the devil stuff. So all the, 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 I want you, being a professor and an ex, you know, just someone who's passionate about this stuff and who understands how important cultural heritage is, what is your understanding of, like, clearly... You talk to Gary Bartz, you talk to enough cats, they say <laughs> slaves didn't come to the islands. Africa was looted, okay? They were forced here against their will. Now, he's, Bill's saying that there was, out of the warfare, the tribes that conquered sold off other people to Europeans. And I just want you to t- talk about this, your, your understanding of the, of the ide- ideas of diaspora and in your mind, um, if in fact, how quickly uh, Europeans tried to separate and abolish African language, African custom, tradition, like naming something Santeria, which is Latin, it's not it's not an African name. So I just want you to riff on that any way you want. I mean, do you believe that that? Uh, I mean, I believe we're all from the motherland, but, you know, do you believe that the that Africa was looted? And then how quickly were was that uh, disinformation and sort of brainwashing occurring in the islands and the splitting up of all those different tribes? Okay. <clears throat> well, generally, of course, I, I certainly would agree Africa was looted, but you've asked so many questions. Let's go back to your beginning question. Go ahead. The beginning question had to do with Santeria, okay, and and the whole proposition that we get rid of the use of the term Santeria. 
um, again, I'm not a person that argues over language. Sure. I just ask people who use language, what do you mean by it? <laughs> For instance, Santeria doesn't mean the same thing in Cuba that it means in Mexico. Okay? It's a, it's a totally different concept in Mexico than it is in Cuba. All right? So if you, um, <clears throat> any place that's using the term, you have to ask people, well, what do you mean when you use uh, by that term? Okay? Now, Santeria is really a term that reflects the fact that the traditional uh, African religions were so suppressed that they went underground, and part of going underground is that they hid within Christian religions, like Catholicism, for example. Okay? So if the Orishas that came from Africa also have Catholic identities, okay? because that was a way that the slaves were able to practice their religion, okay, uh, without the slave owners understanding that um, uh, an African religion was being practiced. They thought the slaves were practicing um, a, a Christian religion, mm -hmm. okay? Right. And so that kind of coming together where a Catholic saint also has a... Um, Yoruba identity, for example, all right? Um, that occurs throughout many, many areas here in the New World because that's called syncretism, and that was one of the ways that we were able to hold on to our religion. So, for instance, many black people in the New World, they don't have a problem on Sundays going to a Christian church, and then on Friday night they'll go to a, um, a, a candomblé ceremony that they didn't have a problem. We don't have a, a problem with that. Okay. So our flexibility is, is not, uh, is, is much greater with regards to religious worship than the Europeans, especially Anglo-Saxons, uh, oriented cultures. Um, so that's what that represents. Okay. And so it's, it's Santeria deals with the saint worship because, uh, uh, Shango and Abatala and various uh, Orishas had identities um, that were related to the saints of the Catholic Church. Um, now, there, you know, if one of the things you'll find is as you talk to people who belong, who have associated with these traditions, they have lots of different arguments, okay? There's arguments about what terms to use and what terms not to use, all right? And Santeria is just one of them. That's not the one that's, well, it's, it's, it's among many of the terms that people are willing to argue about. As I say, I don't argue about the term. Sure. Because I know what we're dealing with. Historically, we're dealing with a people that were dispersed uh, against their will. Okay. They were enslaved for hundreds of years. They had to find a way to hold on to their culture. Okay while still surviving and thriving and creating new generations. Um, and one of the things that they did is they, their religions became very plastic, okay? And they became very, very flexible uh, people. And um, when you try to make them rigid, tell them what they can't do, you know, for example, in, 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 in Cuba, it was illegal up to well into the 20th century to play the drums. And people would play drums and they'd call the police. So what, um, what the folks did when they wanted to have a party is they pulled out a drawer of a dresser, turned it over, and, and played that. 
Okay. <laughs> when the police came, they came looking for drums. There were no drums there. Right. Okay. People were playing drawers in, in, in chiffoniers and they were playing uh, tabletops and they were playing the chairs, you know, um, that is, we as Africans knew every substance has a sound. Okay. And you can play that sound. So today we have the cajon, you know, which is a box drum. But the box drum really came from the fact that instead of being able to play a real drum, sometimes we had to play, to pull out a drawer and play that or play the, the kitchen table. Mm -hmm, okay? Absolutely. So that we wouldn't get thrown into jail. So we had all kinds of ways of being flexible and disguising. And, you know, we were like Elegba, okay, who was the Orisha. You know, we, we were the, uh, the trickster Orisha. We were people who had all kind of tricks so that we could survive, all right? So, as I say, I'm not going to get into no argument with no, no human being about the use of a term because language I know as a language specialist, language is always changing. Okay, you can't study Shakespeare today without a teacher helping you. Oh, absolutely, okay. I still can't understand that stuff. Yeah, yeah, but because the language is very, very different, and that's called modern English that he spoke. Okay, which is the same thing we spoke, but it's very, very different from the way we speak. You can go back even 150 years, and you need somebody to help you understand the way the language is used. Or all you have to do is say, go to a culture in the United States today that you're not used to. And you're going to find people using language in, in ways, you know, that you really don't understand all of their nuances and all of their meanings, right? So as I say, I, I wouldn't get hung up in arguing over language because if you love people, you don't argue over their language. You ask them, what do you mean? Help me understand you, okay? And that increases communication. Whereas if I want to try to stop you from using a word, that's really oppressive, Okay. That's a violent activity, trying to control a person's language, all right, and trying to suppress a person's language. So I, I don't get involved in that. Totally. No, I, I don't want to, yeah, no, we're, I don't want to deal in semantics. I, I guess maybe, um, can you talk about, uh, again, when I use this word, I interviewed the uh, great record producer a couple times, uh, David Rubinson, and he... Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> He did a couple of albums with Mongo Santa Maria about his own uh, music, uh, and, it, and it was later released on, uh, I think, Columbia. And a lot of the music was related to, uh, again, the word that I, I'm using, Descarga, which is a spiritual release um, based on the rhythms of the music. It's just like almost like, well, I don't need to explain it. I'm, and, I'm, and I'm curious in your own experiences about the first time that you went to uh, a, a drumming, a spiritual drumming circle. I know Pablo Landum used to have them in New York. And I'm not talking about a drum circle on, on Lake Michigan or what I'm talking about. The rudiment, the, the roots and the lineage of Descarga and the spiritual ceremonies. Like you said, a, a very polytheistic or very... Um, uh, like very flexible. I think that's what bothered Europeans a lot. It was that, you know, a lot of ceremonies in the, in the islands were very polytheistic. Uh, I just, but did, can you talk about one of the first memories of a, of a, of a spiritual uh, descarga that you maybe experienced at a ceremony like that? Well, um, descarga actually means jam session. 
Okay. <laughs> right, right on. Uh, a discard is a jam session where you get a number of Latin musicians together, okay? And and they're, you know, they're, it's a, they're generally playing jazz. So it's, 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 it's Afro, Afro-Cuban jazz or Afro-Latin jazz. Um, but what I would say is that the traditional, in a traditional ceremony, and I was involved in one, as a matter of fact, one of my teachers, um, this is back in the 50s, one of my teachers took me to a uh, ceremony. He didn't tell me where I was going. Mm. Okay. Um, he just took me there. And um, in order to get into the ceremony, there was a, um, a, was a, a warrior at the door of this storefront who um, had an axe and who uh, the door was locked and he let only those in who he wanted to and then he locked the door again. And I had, I had, had happened to have my drum with me. And um, so I went and stood on the side um, of this room. It was a dark room. It had a pole in the center. Um, and suddenly... Um, some the drummers came in. They started playing their drums. Then people started dancing. And uh, then a priest came in, and he brought a chicken, and they made a sacrifice. Um, uh, my teacher said that I could play, and so I started playing. Um, and at a certain point, um, my eyes were totally closed because I was in a very spiritual place. Um and suddenly I felt a um, something in, at the top of my head, okay? Hmm. And when I opened my eyes, the priest who was leading the ceremony was standing in front of me, and he had taken a feather from the cock, a white cock that they sacrificed, and he put it in my head. And when he did, it's like my head just, well, I was already in a whole other world, but he took me to a whole nother world, okay? Um, he was saying to me, I, he, they were grateful for the, what I was playing, okay? It was an honor, honoring me. And I, it makes me cry when I think about it to this day. I had, I had never been part of this ceremony. I didn't know these people. I didn't know their rhythms. I didn't know anything. All I was doing was coming in, listening to what they were doing, and playing an accompaniment to it, and watching the dancers. And at a certain point, you know, I just got beyond the dancers. This was on 61st uh, between what was called then South Park and Calumet. It was right at the store was right on the corner of Calumet hmm. in Chicago. Okay. Now here's what was going on. I'm 16 years old. I have been taken to a Yoruba ceremony. I didn't know what Yoruba was. Okay. But the Yoruba knew what a drummer was. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they knew that I was reaching inside myself. They knew I was paying attention to the dancer and playing so that the dancer would dance better because I had been trained to do that, okay? I played with a group called Carmen Cedar Romero Dance Studio. I'll talk about them a little bit later. So I knew how to play for dancers, even though I didn't know their traditional rhythms, okay? 
And he honored me and my playing with that feather in my head. Okay? He could have, that changed my whole life. All right? I mean, it still moves me. Wow. All right? Um, because wow. in, the, in the spiritual world, it's timeless. Okay? <laughs> and in, in the world that you create when you worship, it's a timeless world. So that wasn't back in 1959. That was forever in each moment. Okay, so that because I had that capacity, okay, to get out of my individual, you know, mind and self, and to be fully in the present with these dancers in this ceremony, that's all they were really looking for. All right, now I, I didn't understand it at the time. It took me thirty years to fully understand that, and here's how I came to the understanding. There was a Yoruba dancer, okay? Uh, she's from, actually, she's from uh, Cuba. And she's here in Chicago, and I met her. She said she wanted me to play for her. And I said, why? I don't know the traditional rhythms. I'm not a bata drummer. She said, yeah, but my bata drummers are arguing with each other <laughs> and with me, <laughs> okay? And I want you to play for me, okay? And so, and she'd seen me play before. And so I played for her, and she was happy. Okay, and she's she uh, worshipped at the shrine of um, of um, Yemanja. Okay, and she was wearing Yemanja's colors. All right, so even though I'm not a bata drummer, okay, because when I when a dancer dances, I give myself fully to that. Okay, and I've been doing this since I since 1956 or 57. Okay. She knows that I'm going to be able to play so that she can reach the spirit she is trying to worship in her dance. And she's the one that helped me to understand why she did the same thing the priest was willing to do, okay? Even though I didn't know the culture, I knew the culture. Because the name of the, the way these dances developed is that, and the rhythms developed is that drummers watched what dancers were doing. And they had a conversation with them. You know, for instance, some days when the dancers uh, comes to the, to, the, to the ceremony, the dancer's tired, okay? You got to watch her knees and you got to watch her, her ankles and see how she's lifting them up. And if she's not lifting them up high enough, you got to play to get her to lift that knee up a little bit higher, okay? Sometimes she's a little stiff, okay? Because she hasn't really uh, fully exercised, so you got to help her backbone to get more into that that snaky rhythm, okay? That we're capable of doing, okay? The undulation. So because I pay attention to the physical and the psychological dimensions of what my dancers are doing, all right, I can play even though I don't belong to the cultures that asked me to come play. Um, That's what we have accomplished here in the new world, okay? We've accomplished that level of flexibility so that we're not trapped, because if we were trapped, they would have destroyed our culture. Can you talk about the... Um, I mean, I've often said that I left this planet a long time ago, 
and I've been operating mm-hmm. on, on an extraterrestrial level because I've been talking to all these cats from all over the world, a lot of amazing drummers and percussionists, but just all around amazing human beings. But is there a mm-hmm. way for you to talk about the ascension and the and the and the spiritual plane that you were at? I know you were already in a vortex when you were playing the drum, but once uh, the cat put the the cock's feather on your head. Can you talk about that space, mm-hmm. spiritual space you were in? Well, it's just, it's a, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, Sun Ra uh, and his orchestra, you know, or uh, I'll tell you, let, let me talk about it this way. Mm-hmm. Lionel Hampton used to play drums for uh, Louis Armstrong back in the 20s and the 30s. And Lionel Hampton said this, he said, playing for Louis is like being in heaven. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, the jazz, okay, this music um, that we uh, call jazz is really a music that's based upon transcendence. Uh, and it's the way uh, we express our relationship to um, transcendent things, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. Um, and we use the language of not being here on earth, but we're nowhere else but on earth, <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, but that's a metaphor, and it's okay. I know what you're talking about when we say that, okay? But the main thing is that here on earth, there are deeper realities than merely what your five senses can see. And we want to be in contact with that. And our music has been a way of doing that. Um, and so whether it's gospel or spirituals or jazz or rhythm and blues or candomblé, um, um, all of our music throughout the whole new world, okay, coming, uh, going back to um, West Africa, all of this based upon how you, how do you transform your mind, transform your consciousness, so that you can experience things that are beyond merely what your five senses experience. Then, when we begin to study the rest of the cultures of the world, we find that music does the same thing everywhere. Everywhere, music transforms human beings so that they get beyond the limitations of time and space of what they're. Um, basic external senses feel. Is it a? Is it fair to say it's? I mean, like, is it like a sixth sixth sense kind of thing? What would be an appropriate? That's a yeah. that's a nice metaphor for it. Yeah, but metaphor. Yeah. What I would say about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I would say about it is that it's a it's a dimension of human experience that everyone's capable of. Dig. Okay. And some cultures favor it and give a lot of reward to people who, who know how to get there and spend time there, okay? Other cultures um, don't favor it as much and favor other kinds of things, okay? Like uh, this, um, this chief of, uh, in Suriname, he said of the European culture, they've gone a long ways down the road of technology. He said, but we've gone a long ways down the road of the human heart. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, t- 
technologically based cultures are not quite as interested in the spirit, what we call spiritual, but was just really a dimension of human experience that's not favored in Western culture. Okay. It's not that Western culture doesn't have spiritual experiences. It's just that they don't favor it. All right. But African cultures favor the spiritual experiences. Okay. And African based cultures, Native American Indian cultures are like that too. All right. They favor it. It's not that they don't have technologies. Okay. It's just that they give a very, very high priority to the spiritual, so-called spiritual dimensions of life. All right. That's partly why we say, you know, our oppressors in a racist society are so oppressive. One of the reasons is that we tend to want to value spiritual work, spiritual experiences more than they do. They, they look at our spiritual experiences like the expression of our music or the expression of our religion, and they ridicule that. And it's, they ridicule it because it's not as high a priority for them as, say, some technological experiences. Yeah, I mean, I, it's also fair to say that they're threatened by it. I don't think it's that it's not a priority. They try to, uh, I mean, it's always been dissuaded. I don't have to tell you, uh, by the late 70s, you look at any jazz album, there's no more percussion on it. It was just a core, it became a, a drum set. That's it. Before, in the early, late 60s, early 70s, you'd find multiple percussion on it. So I, I'm not sure, it, it definitely, listen, when I go to a concert, I only want mm -hmm. A spiritual experience i want to tap into that uh dimension uh the human that human dimension beyond mm -hmm. the, this form or the five senses but i tend mm -hmm. to think i mean my own without it's just it's never rhythm has never been trusted and sophisticated rhythm has never been trusted and you know uh in our culture people just want you to sit in a chair clap on after a song even if you don't even like it and you know just it's a very it's it's i don't know if it's a priority or it's just merely that they would just would rather people be pacified in a formula trip as opposed to having cathartic experiences through music yes well partly what you're identifying is the influence of Anglo-Saxon culture on American life. Absolutely. Because see, there are other cultures, European cultures that are very rhythmically oriented. Okay. For instance, the, the Irish can play some drums. No doubt. Yeah. Okay. The Anglo-Saxon. Thank and, you. That's what I'm focusing on. Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah, you're talking about the, their particular influence and that and combined with that was that they stole a people. Okay. Right. And one of the things they needed to do is how do we how do we keep these people we stole and how do we control them and how do we get work out of them and value out of them and sex out of them and all the things they want to steal from from the people they stole. OK, so you're dealing both with a culture that it has extremely puritanical uh, roots, OK, suppressing various kinds of human behavior and favoring other kinds of human behavior, all right? So that they did with themselves, all right? I mean, the wars between <laughs> the various aspects of, uh, of uh, Northern Europeans and their values, you know, they fought wars for 30 years, they fought wars for 100 years, et cetera. They fought with each other about how to be a human being, 
So you know they're going to fight with other cultures that they come into contact with about how to be a human being. And that's part of the, the conflict that, that they have with African-based cultures. The whole question is, how do you be a human being? Okay. Not that we're not human, okay, um, as much as it is, uh, and, for, and certainly for some, they don't believe that we're human. But the real question is, how do you be a human being? And in the world I live in, the one I value, okay, uh, what I'm espousing is that we need to open a way for people to be human in all the various ways they want to be human without hurting themselves and hurting each other, Okay. Uh, because we're not all the same. You know, some people have very, very great talents at, at, at certain aspects of the way you be human, and other people have great talents in the other way, great gifts, all right? Um, I, I realize and have to admit, you know, for, of course, my father was a drummer, and I watched drumming all my life. But I, you know, as soon as I picked up the drum, I was highly valued by my community, Okay. And everyone that saw me play. So I know this is a gift that I have. All right. Mm. I thank God for it. Um, I don't have a great gift at singing, for example. All right. I'm just not a great singer. But um, the Lord gifted me with drumming. So I want to make a world where each of our gifts are valued. And each of the ways we want to live are valued without us having to put each other down because we vary in terms of the gifts that we have, our proclivities, our interests, etc. You know, a, a world that is, is, to use a term that you brought up earlier, uh, or part of that term anyway, culturally pluralistic, okay? I really believe in cultural pluralism, um, where um, people of different backgrounds and ways of being human and expressing themselves can all live together without conflict and violence. Talking to Philip Royster here on the Jake Feinberg Show. I got another name that voice for you. You might get this one. Take a listen to it. We'll come back. Um, we have to be self-sufficient as far as rhythm is concerned. We cannot rely on the drum to dictate for us the time and the rhythm, you know, the measurement. And we have to be secure in our own ability to stay on, uh, stay within the structure, the rhythmic <laughs> structure. You know, we have multiples of two, basically, for, uh, every four bars. That's the way we, 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 we separate that. And if we can fill every four bars, then we can fill every eight bars, then we can fill every 16 bars. It becomes so natural that we don't have to really account. We just fill the the space. Mm. So, once you're secure <laughs> in the ability to fill the space, you don't need the drums to keep time for you. But, you also have to be very uh, 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 connected. You have to be very connected to that space that you, you, you're feeling. Because, drummers like Elvin, and there are a few others, that play they play within the time, but they're sort of floating with the time. They're not actually marking the time for you. They're playing within the time, but it's like sailing over the time, playing a musical uh, and rhythmical, of course, 
a musical and rhythmical way in such a way that it it's it's it floats. It floats. Uh. Nobody's marking. Nobody's telling <laughs> you, dictating exactly where where the downbeats are. You know, because <laughs> that 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 puts weight on the on the on the time feel. If you could, if the downbeats are every downbeat is dictated, then it it's it's such a heavy weight on the on the time feel that there's no excitement there. All right, Mr. Royster, you know who that is? That sounds like my cousin Tim. You know, you're right actually. No, that 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 was not Tim. No, he's a he's a Chicago this is a Chicago cat. Uh it was my interview, my second interview with the trombone player Julian Priester. Is that Priester? It's Priester, man. And uh, and and I want you to talk about this like how cuz all we I mean, I don't want to in the pop music realm there's a lot of weight on the time feel. There's no excitement. And the only music I love is when people are floating through the time and they are able to mark the time through feel and not through um, a formula trip. And I kind of, you know, what he was talking about, he didn't, he went on to say that when he played with Sun Ra, it was a great experience because Sun Ra would just point at somebody and say, it's your time to solo. And mm -hmm. they really had to have their own inner time feel. And, and in doing so, they became less reliant on the traditional rhythm section, which then opened up the rhythm section to play more melodically. And I kind of wanted you to take us through your evolution of floating through time as a percussionist. Well, actually, uh, the discussion of time that, that uh, Priester gave us is, is really related to traditional African um, hmm. drum ensemble. Mm -hmm. And um, when you take a person like Big Black or Ntumi, okay, they are playing an African-American version of an entire drum ensemble in West Africa, okay? Mm -hmm. And the reason that's, ha that's, that's the way we hear here in the New World, okay? because we didn't grow up in those societies where we belonged to a community and there were say 13 different um, polymetric um, uh, patterns that were being played simultaneously, okay? By different people, okay? Or different choirs, all right? So here in the new world, especially in the jazz world, okay? We've got these, uh, these great drummers like Ntumi and, and before him, Big Black, who really were playing what they heard of an entire drum ensemble, but it's only one person playing, okay? <laughs> um, but the traditional ensembles are made up of like a choir with different voicing of drumming, okay? And other percussion instruments. At the top of the choir or at the bottom of the choir, was the person doing the talking because drums talked in West Africa, mm -hmm. okay? And just as you talk and you're not controlled by uh, the bass rhythm, you talk, sometimes you're in rhythm, sometimes you're out, sometimes you're in three-quarter time, sometimes you're in four-quarter time, etc. okay? So the drum that's doing the talking, which is either at the bottom or the top, or it can sometimes be in the middle, all right, is like a, a bird flying, okay? They're not controlled by the time, or, like, or a great singer who's singing, okay? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hear the time, it's working under you. It's working under you 
to keep you afloat. All right. <laughs> when I when I'm and you're you're flying, your wings are flying, and that's in in Sunrise Band when it's time for your solo. Okay, all that all that rhythm is underneath you. Okay, but you're flying on top. You're in and you're out. You can switch timing. Okay, like one of the great things if you go to hear say Ghanaian traditional African drum ensembles. Okay, they're going to play a tune where the cowbell is leading them, they're going to switch back and forth between three-quarter time, four-quarter time, six-eight time, seven-six time, eleven-fifths time, okay? And the, the bell leads to tell the drummer when to switch from time to time, all right? So they're playing one time over another time over another time in time, <laughs> but they're also playing multiple times simultaneously, Okay. So one of the first things you learn as a drummer, for instance, is how to play three quarters in one hand and four four beats in the other. All right, that's just fundamental. Over in West Africa, the four-year-olds can do that. Okay, um, when one of my drum teachers came back, she was trying to get me to play uh, eleven beats in one hand and three beats in the other. Okay, and she wanted she expected me to learn that. All right, so. The, the time issue is not that there is no time, it's that time is just so sophisticated. And we, again, need that flexibility, that capacity to move back and forth, okay? So that you can solo in four, four time, and then you can switch to three quarter time. Like, that's one of the fantastic things that Miles, you know, when Tony got with the band, and Tony's great flexibility, Tony could switch Miles, cut the time in half, double the time, switch it to three, switch it to, to eight, and, said, and he could stop in no time at all and let folks just uh, do, you know, uh, without rhythm. Um, that capacity, that flexibility to switch back and forth, you become the master of time rather than time the master of you. Okay? That's what the African tradition is. Okay? You, you are time's master. Time is not your master. But it's not that there is no time. It's that there is a master of time. When you, I just, for my generation, um, you know, there's something very transcendent about, you know, the forefathers of this music. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously guys like, you know, Wayne Shorter are still here and, and he was connected mm -hmm. to guys like Blakey. Um, mm -hmm. I, I found it interesting that um, I wanted to read you this. I was transcribing one of my interviews with uh, the now um, uh, released free Bill Cosby. And, and last night he said, he said, you have to understand that when Red Garland left Miles, that passed through the projects more than someone passing the Bill of Rights. Quote, hey, man, did you hear? Red's gone, man. He left Miles. Everybody says, that's it for Miles, man. People didn't realize his genius. It didn't make a difference who he put in that band. Philly Joe's gone, man. That's it for Miles. Miles played with a lot of different drummers, but every time Miles made the changes, it was always, that's it for Miles, man. And it was never it for Miles. Is that, is, being that you were around in the 50s, I, I just wanted to ask you about if you feel the drummer is the leader of the band, uh, contrary to popular belief, 
And is it was it true that every time someone a big name like Garland or Philly Joe left, people were like, no, "That's it for Miles, man." Not in Chicago. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm. Uh, 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 Bill Cosby's not from Chicago. He's from Philly, uh, Pennsylvania. That's right. Yeah, yeah, Philly. Okay, so so you know they got their own culture there. Yeah. In Chicago, okay, um, I never was aware of anyone who was overly disturbed about Miles's. Uh, growth and, and and expansion and change. First of all, you know, I grew up among musicians. They didn't expect groups to last forever anyway. Okay, groups are are, are pretty flexible and they change. Okay, so um, but here's what Ma said about it. Ma said that Tony was the leader of his band. Okay, when Tony became his drummer, he said that he's he's the leader of the band. All right. So Miles was very dependent. And here's what he another thing he said. He said, Tony's a person, if he went out and took a walk and tripped over a crack in the sidewalk, he'd go home and play it. <laughs> okay? So, um, and the other thing about, that Miles loved about Tony is that Tony knew where all the rhythms came from. See, rhythms are, are, don't really come from music. They come from life. Right. All right? Right. Like if you're a Gandhi, if, if, if you... If you work on a chain gang and you got to build a railroad, there's a rhythm that goes along with building that railroad, okay? Tamping down those, those spikes, okay? Um, my, well, Tony understood where the rhythms came from that he was playing, that, that black people play. They ain't just something that somebody's thinking up in their head, okay? The foundations of the music are in the way people live their lives from day to day, Okay? Whether it was rural, uh, whether, for instance, take, take Coltrane, okay? Coltrane's music seems experimental to people who don't know what it's like to hunt in South Carolina and North Carolina to hunt coon with, with dogs. But if you listen to Terry, to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, okay, when they're doing the hunt, songs when they're imitating the sounds of the animals that they're chasing in the hunt. And then you listen to John Coltrane, you understand where Coltrane came from. He didn't come from just thinking anything he wanted to think. He was carrying on his culture. Hmm. Okay? He was taking hmm. that culture of them southern rural black people that when they wanted to eat and they wanted some meat, it was time to get your shotgun and let's go out there and hunt something. And them get your dogs. And them dogs chasing them foxes and them squirrels and whatever else they were eating there and sounds that they made. That's what Sonny and Terry, Sonny, Terry and Brian McGee were, were uh, singing for us in their folk songs. And if you listen carefully you learn to Coltrane, you realize when Coltrane started experimenting, he really went back to his roots. Okay. I just want to, you're talking about like the uh, early 60s period? That's right. Yeah. That music, okay, that, yeah. that everybody thought was so new. It was new, but the newness was to bring the traditional country, southern hunt, okay, the sounds of the hunt into the music. Wow. Okay? Wow. When you listen to black musicians, you got to understand they sitting up here just thinking of anything they want to think of. They're connected to something. That's why the church has been so powerful an influence on the music. Okay? Ray Charles couldn't help but sing what, the way he sang. 
nor Aretha, because they were they came from a a church experience, okay, a gospel experience, okay, a Protestant black religious experience, and that influenced it when they became secular singers, okay. So, yeah, Tony understood all that. He knew that the culture is always rooted, okay. We can do all the experimenting that we want to, all right. In Miles's music, in that thing, all of that music of the '60s, okay, um, was rooted in the blues. Okay, if you knew the blues, you knew what Miles was doing. If you didn't know the blues, then you thought it was just all new stuff. But there's two things that influenced Miles in the '50s and the '60s: the modal, many other things, but major things were modal and blues. Okay. And blues is always there because blues is the fundamental rock, the bedrock of jazz. Thank God. I mean, okay. well, that, I mean, okay, uh, we're going to have to do like 10 parts. I got, can we, can we, can I have one more question for you, but can we do set two? Because I'm, sure. I mean, so much more to But, okay, so mm-hmm. um, you tell me what your understanding of this, <clears throat> of this whole thing was. Because I'm with you, the, the, it's rooted in the blues, but um, in 65, um, mm-hmm. the one thing that was interesting about the plug nickel sessions, uh, the story mm-hmm. is that, well, there's, there's many, I've asked Ron Carter directly what, the, what his story, what his, uh, he had, was flying back and forth because he had had a newborn at, uh, in New York. So after a two, he'd get like a 2 a.m. flight out of Chicago, go back to New York and then, you know, mm-hmm. go to class or be with his wife and then go back to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now, the story <clears throat> was that, and it's been told um, <clears throat> secondhand to a couple of different people, but that Herbie and Wayne and Tony and Ron uh, were bored to death of the um, sort of um, the, the, the songs that they were playing. And they took a blood oath that they said, "Listen, we are going to, um, we're gonna, we're gonna go to the gig tonight. And when we, after we play the heads of the tune, we're gonna leave the head and go off and go out." And they didn't tell Miles, and they, and so they took a blood oath. They showed up at the plug nickel, and Miles is like, "We're recording tonight." And they're like, "Oh no!" They're like, <laughs> "They're like, we, we're going for it anyway. We're doing it anyway." And they did it, and it was the first, and it was really the beginning of the expansion of, you know, tunes like My Funny Valentine or whatever, where once you left the head of the tune, you were accessing that human experience beyond the five senses. And I just wanted you, and and, and that to me was an ultimate, that, that might be blues, but that speaks more to like an improvis- improvisational um growth period in music so the question i have is regardless of what you mm-hmm. is how responsible are rhythm sections for creating new musical vocabulary um well here's what i would say the creation of new musical vocabulary is an inevitable thing okay because um except for those those uh, performers who insist that the song be played the same way every time. Right. Okay. It's very hard to do that. They say Mary Carpenter was like that. <laughs> okay. Her band members hated playing for her 
how she expected the songs to occur the same way every time. But for all the rest of the people who are playing, um, who don't have that demand, it's very hard to play the same tune the same way every time you play it, especially if you play it for years and years, okay? The only way you can do that is you write it down and read it, okay? And you insist that everybody new coming in, learn it that way, et cetera. That's a very, very difficult thing to do. So innovation in music, especially music that's played over and over again, is almost inevitable, all right? Mm. Now, your whole thing, what's more important, though, about what you mentioned is, is innovation the source of the spiritual? Yes. And absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay? That's not true. You can play a, a blues just like it was played in 1910, but if you play it like you feel it that's the source of the spiritual the spiritual is not an innovation the spiritual is in feeling and understanding the roots of what you're expressing okay so that you can go to i've gone to concerts where i have seen singers who are singing in styles that were really much no not much different from the 1930s and the 1940s and they were imitating and i felt nothing and then i've gone to another club and saw a woman, this was in Kansas City, playing the same 19, singing the same 1930s and 40s blues. But she knew what she was singing. She, she sung it like she lived it last night. That's where the spirit is. The spirit is in doing it fully so that you understand what you're expressing. Whether it's a blues from the 1920s or avant-garde from the 1960s okay uh doesn't particularly matter okay um <clears throat> that's what i would say yeah no i mean spiritual is in mm-hmm. yeah you, you, the okay. word the word the word you're it seems to me that the one the word that you're searching for in, from the kansas city woman was auth- authenticity and and maybe her own voice she wasn't imitating it she was being in her own way singular but touching on the roots and the traditions do you believe uh i also was fascinated by this um <clears throat> joe chambers said that stanley crouch said that the mid-60s blue note stuff that was going on with bobby hutcherson andrew hill that was really the free jazz movement in fact guys like albert eiler and uh, Archie Shep, maybe over time they got better, but at least in the early stages of their expression, they couldn't back up a singer, they couldn't play changes, they couldn't keep a gig. So the cats mm-hmm. that were playing that Blue Note and c- carving out those albums that touched on lineage, uh, touched on the American songbook, and then added vocabulary to it, that was the real free jazz movement uh, and not coming from the guys that are known now as the avant-garde guys. Uh, and I wanted you to just talk about your, how you feel about that. They, they, I just was interested. I mean, there's no, Joe Chambers is an incredible drummer, but he just, I mean, they, he said he didn't really respect what those guys were doing. They were squeaking and squawking. That's what he said. Well, here's what I would say. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't believe in putting down, people's music (laughs) so i'm not into that 
Let me tell you this little story. Um, I mentioned John Betts to you before. Oh, okay, dude, I cannot. I, by the way, thank you for sending me that album. That is a treat, man. Wow. John Betts. We were playing in a club in Nashville, um, and playing with us was a white guitar player who was born in Mississippi, Steve Blaylock. He's dead now. Uh, had a tragic ending, but anyway. Steve was playing guitar with us. And Steve was the kind of guy, let me tell you his background. He couldn't go home because he loved playing with black musicians so much and his folks hated that, mm. okay? So he couldn't, that, that's how much he was dedicated to the music. He, he, he loved playing jazz. Well, anyway, we're playing in this club. We're playing the blues, okay? And the, the group had been playing about a couple of years together. I mean, we were beginning to, to gel and stuff like that. And it came time for Steve to do his solo. And Steve, um, when he got into the midst of his solo, he played three blind mice, that theme. <laughs> okay? It took the group to the moon. Okay? He played three blind mice. But he played it with so much soul, okay, and so much spirit, okay, that it, it transformed the John Best Society. What you heard on that album that I sent you was a, began when Steve Blaylock played a solo, and in the midst of the solo, he went into Three Blind Mice. <laughs> but he tore Three Blind Mice up. Man. Yeah, no, I did. I, okay? You know, man, I did. It's so, yeah, no, I did. 100%. Okay? Yeah. So the 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 off, the great creativity in music is that whatever musicians are playing that they feel it. Okay? Um what I like about the new music that Chef and Train and other people were playing is uh, a concept that we call palaver in West Africa. Okay? And palavers were were where uh, the community got together, and if they had a problem, everybody came out into the square or the center of the of the of the village, and they, they all talked at the same time. If you were listening to them, you thought this is nothing but cacophony, okay? But they got their issues resolved, and then they went on and had dinner and had a good time. And I've actually seen this happen at uh, West African. Uh, among West African communities here in the United States, okay, where they have a problem. They've been at, they were at a retreat in country area. This is in New York. And they all came out and they talked and all at the same time, okay? And uh, they did this for maybe about a half an hour to an hour. And after that time was over, the problem was solved, and they went and they had dinner, and everything was cold. <laughs> well, that's what new music was based on. It was based on the palava. Okay, it wasn't just anybody squeaking and hawking. Okay, the, the musicians that are hollering that it was just squeaking and honking, they just didn't know the, the roots where the culture came from. But remember what I told you, if a black musician is playing it and it's somehow communicating, it comes from some roots somewhere. And if you understand the roots, then you'll understand the music. Okay, Philip Royster, what an honor, man. I mean, you just burn through the questions with ease. Um, very articulate. And I actually understood a lot, uh, which normally doesn't happen because I have to go back and listen to it. But um, let's, 
let's definitely do at least another set, man. It was really an honor to connect with you, man. <laughs> I love talking to you, Jake. I admire you, man. I'm going through these interviews. Yeah, man, you're just starting, bro. You're just getting going. Oh, man. Yeah, and just, you know, I got to send you a couple of my books because some of the chap, there's one book in particular that, that talks about immigrants coming to this country and also right well just the stuff but it's all excerpts from the interviews with all the cats about all this stuff that you <laughs> would love and anyway yeah man um you know like it's all about spirit and soul to me uh, for me i'm not a musician yeah. so i have to bring that essence and and bring those stories out of people like you so thank you so much man we'll do it again i'll get a copy of this to you later hey Thank you, Jake, and have a good evening and enjoy the holiday, okay? Oh, man, we'll be in and touch. I'll you... be hearing from you soon. Oh, definitely, okay. bro. Take care, man. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye now. And we'll be right back on the Jake Feinberg Show.